We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Good morning. Welcome to the Transformative Principle. This is your host, Eric McKelkey. And on today's show, we have two guests, Dr. Robert Fearson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. And also joining us, Dr. Seth Weitzman. Welcome. Nice to be here from New York. Yes. Yeah. So so today's topic, I was personally really interested in when I saw the title of the book that you guys had, had co-authored conflict to collaboration a school leader's guide to unleashing conflicts problem solving power we were talking before we started recording this morning this sometimes is what keeps principals up at night it sure is you know it's funny you you run into people as a principal you run into people at a party and they must they say oh it must be so nice being a school principal you know you go home at three o'clock it's uh, it's a warm and fuzzy place to be. And of course, they don't realize the truth. And for me, that came about because I was very active in suburban New York City at the county level and also the state level associations of principals would meet periodically. And I noticed that you know during the lunch break or after work, when we went out, I'd sit back and listen to what people were complaining about. I mean, everybody can complain about their jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And I noticed that it was teachers versus teachers, and the principal had to sort it out. It was teachers against administrators, often involving unions here in New York. It was parents sending principals overnight emails with subject lines like important 
issue to deal with Eric smiling because he just got one of those last night, actually. So what I realized that all of this stuff had a common theme, and that was conflict. Principals didn't like dealing with the conflict on the job and also didn't know how to as well. And uh, I was in a bookstore one day uh, in the business shelves, actually, looking for books on school leadership. Often you have to look in the business section. And I found one called Leading Through Conflict. And I had an epiphany standing there in the Harvard Coop, uh, was the name of the bookstore, um, and realized that maybe there's something I could do about it. Maybe it wasn't just a distasteful part of the job that I had to live with. And there actually is a body of research out there, comes from business and organizational psychology. But it more than anything, the last 10 years that I was a principal, and I was a principal in total 27 years, but it changed my practice more than anything in the last 10 years. And you were you middle school level principal, Seth? You can send me condolences, uh, but I loved it, actually. I was a middle school principal in two different school districts for a total of 27 years. Rob was a middle school principal as well, and then yeah. went on to become a superintendent. Yeah, actually, yeah. we we met as middle school principal colleagues. And yeah, actually, Seth was the middle school principal for my kids. I just remembered that. So I, I really do have a vendetta here. To, they were great. Yeah. Kids, and one of them just had a <laughs> baby two weeks. Yeah, thank you. All right. That's a nice, that's a nice connection. So, so Rob, where, where'd your motivation come from with the book based on your experiences? Uh, I think it's twofold. Similarly from experience, you know, I, I was a principal, I was an assistant superintendent, I was a superintendent, and certainly a good part of your day as a school leader at any level are filled with the challenges that you don't have on your calendar. You know, you walk in the morning and you think, well, I have to do this, I'll get this done, I'll get that done, and very quickly it kind of dissembles because one issue or another comes up, and it's often the kind of tension between opposing viewpoints, opposing issues, opposing approaches to something. So certainly that that is one. And so when Seth and I talked, it was certainly struck a nerve. And the second piece is that I've been working uh, in higher ed, either part-time or full-time, for a good number of years and working particularly in school leadership programs with aspiring school leaders, principals, aspiring directors, chairpeople, superintendents, et cetera. And they always mention almost spontaneously at one point or another that the thing that they are most fearful of is conflict. They worry about how to deal with issues that arise between stakeholders in some level. They worry about dissension and how they'll manage that. They worry about controversial issues and how to approach those things. And even in higher, even principal preparation courses, there there is no focus on this topic. So we send people out into the field to learn by experience. And, and that's not a great way to do it because what happens is they're unprepared to look at this strategically and to be able to harness conflict for ways to improve their schools. If you've been listening to Transformative Principle for any amount of time, you know that I have a love-hate relationship with EdTech. We have the ability to personalize learning for every single one of our students, and yet so many of our EdTech tools fall short. We need our technology to do more for us 
That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum and that it's proven to benefit all student populations, including English language learners and students in special ed programs. As a principal, I've used this in my school. As a parent, I've had my children use it as well. And let me tell you, this is a tool that definitely helps students learn and practice better. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments, and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? Now, you also know that I don't care so much about test scores, but I know that they are legislatively convenient and something that we have to deal with and manage on a day-to-day basis. If you can implement something that is easy and effective, why wouldn't you do it? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com slash B for a demo. That's IXL.com slash B-E. How often do you see that with your aspiring principles that their fear of conflict leads to avoiding conflict? I, I think it's very common. I mean, it, it's right on the tip of their tongue, and it's what they'll tell you that they're most afraid of. And what we sh- the kind of perspective that we have very often about conflict is that it's a bad thing. So if you are experiencing conflict in some way as a school leader, you've done something wrong. You've made something worse. But the fact of the matter is, Seth and I learned as we delved into this subject more deeply and thought about our own experiences and reflected upon them in ways that we came out of this in productive ways, what you can do is harness conflict. What you can do is dress conflict constructively. And when you do that, you you do many things that are beneficial for your school. You create better relationships. You foster better communication. You build your school's capacity to solve future problems because you learn how to do these things. In our book, we call this conflict agility, which is basically, Seth often says, it's like a muscle. And if you don't pay attention to it, it kind of becomes unused and deteriorates. But when you exercise these conflict agility strategies, you wind up strengthening that muscle, not just for yourself, but for the school community as a whole. I just want to go back, Eric, before we move on and talk about how school leaders can manage conflict. I wanted to go back to the question of the impact of neglecting conflict. And of course, any conflict, whether it's in a marriage, family, with your children, what have you, conflict unaddressed just festers. But I also believe that some of the substantive issues that we face in school, and I know that mentioning it might be controversial in some places, but issues like racism in school, issues like inequity, I think part of the reason why these issues have persisted is because school leaders have overlooked them for fear of the conflict that they will inevitably bring. There's a great book. There's one book that I like to shout out in these presentations called With the Best Intentions, written by two authors named Lewis and Diamond, that describes exactly this in a high school outside 
Chicago. Everybody's kind of aware for parents, school administrators, teachers, everyone's aware of the inequities that exist in the school, but there is an unwillingness to actually deal with them because people fear the conflict that will result and where that will end up. Yeah, just it just kind of festers and sometimes we put our heads in the sand and just hope nobody brings it up. Yeah. Yeah. Has the library book situation been as lively on the East Coast as it has been in the West with banning books? I don't think so. There are, in the county that I live, just north of New York City, Westchester County, there's one school district in particular, but no, you know, opening up a newspaper, the book banning issue, CRT also has not been the kind of hot button issue that it's been elsewhere in the country. I think what we've experienced in, at least in in this area in New York and probably surrounding the metropolitan New York City uh, area is discussions that sometimes get heated over, well, first of all, during COVID, uh, certainly there were many controversies about when schools should open, shouldn't open, under what conditions, et cetera. But what's come out of that too is is controversy about social emotional learning, its place in the curriculum, what it means, how it should get done. Even the term itself is a, is kind of a hot button issue, which is one of the things that we talk about in terms of strategies is how to deescalate those kinds of conversations and turn them into productive discussions. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting to us that we wrote the book two years ago. I think we pressed submit and sent the manuscript on to the editor. And and the manuscript was about kind of the -the run-of-the-mill school conflict that we've been describing among stakeholders in the school. But within six months after we submitted the manuscript, the kinds of political strife, CRT, book banning, etc., had, had, you know, reached national headlines. It's interesting. Rob and I sometimes play a game about when's the, uh, it's not a game. We ask ourselves a question. When is the, is this the worst period of school conflict in the United States in terms of conflict, you know, in the national headlines? And you have to go back quite a few years, we think. I mean, 1954, Brown versus Board of Education and desegregation in the 1970s. I mean, this has been a difficult period to be a school leader. Yeah, yeah, definitely things that I don't know that anyone was prepared to have conversations about and think would become such big topics. And really, the some of those conflicts go way beyond the in-house conflicts with students and staff and parents and it's more of community-wide or or statewide or national conflicts. So I mentioned a little bit guys that sometimes leaders will avoid conflict but how else do you see principals approaching conflict? What other approaches are there besides just avoid it and hope for the best? Well, we say there are three basic approaches. There are the three A's, we call them. One is avoidance, and it's it takes many forms. I mean, we've all probably known school leaders who set up committees, ask you to join, and you go, I don't know if I want to join this, because you know the committee's not going anywhere. <laughs> They're going to deliberate the 
issue and when it comes to recommendations at some point it gets buried that's a form of of avoidance right so avoidance takes lots of different forms another the second a we call aggression i'm surprised as a also teaching in an ed leadership <coughs> program at mercy college here in new york how many of my students who are all teachers at this point, aspiring school leaders, talk about the aggressive approach to conflict from their principals? And it's everything from, yes, screaming, <laughs> I can't believe it, as if they think that there's something to be gained, just outright yelling at school staff. But it's Beyond that, we also say it's using the incentives and disincentives, um, institutional incentives and disincentives in order to coerce an outcome. So, for example, you know, who gets the best parking space assigned? Who gets the preferential teaching schedule what was your end of year rating? I mean, these are the kinds of incentives and disincentives that principals sometimes use in order to coerce an outcome. We say that's a form of aggression mm -hmm. as well. And then the third A, as Rob began describing before, is addressing the school conflict. That's being upfront and honest, at the same time, respectful of each other, we kind of put the approach into two different categories. One are the leadership strategies that can be employed, and we have quite a number of them in our book. And the second is a protocol that we adapted from design thinking, which actually comes from the field of engineering, but can be used in a productive way to, to take on uh, some of the controversial issues we face. Is it safe to say we should shoot for addressing over avoidance and aggression? <laughs> is that always the better choice? Very safe to say. Yeah. I mean, there are times, actually, the, the, the serious answer, this is kind of a, a in the weeds, but sometimes it does make sense to avoid. You know, you have the, the, the phrase, that's not the hill I want to die on. You know that phrase? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it does make sense. You can't take on every issue. And we also say in our book that it also is sensible at times to pick the low-hanging fruit, to use another metaphor. We say kind of start by uh, taking on the less consequential conflicts in a school until the faculty gets more accustomed to that and confident in their ability to listen to each other and to reach a resolution. I did that as a school principal, actually. It's kind of where I started. I began faculty meetings with, I called it for the good of the order. They kind of mocked that for some reason. I changed it to for the school, for the good of the school. And I invited teachers to bring up issues as long as they were school-wide issues, not my own particular problem or my <laughs> you know, classroom or department, what have you. And as long as they uh, were going to make themselves part of the solution, you couldn't just point fingers or offload the problem onto the school administrators. Um, so I would actually solicit 
issues. And we'd spend the first 10 minutes of a faculty meeting, you know, in a community problem solving exercise. So a teacher might stand up, this is middle school, right? You know what they look like in the spring? <laughs> so a teacher <laughs> might say, you know, behavior in the hallways, this is what's going on. We had the phrase, spring has sprung, right? I'm sure it's everywhere in the world among, I love them, 11, 12, 13, 14 year olds. And together, we would brainstorm solutions to it. You know, uh, I'm the principal, I better get out there in the hall. You know, we all should get out there during the change of classes. We Whatever solutions came up, but we practiced group problem solving. And it's an example. So yeah. what Seth illustrates in that discussion is the one of our key principles, which is principle PLE, which is, you know, taking a kind of step back and being able to put a structure around these issues, these conflicts, the, the dissension that you experience, rather than kind of deal with it, fighting it off as it comes to you. You know, people, what people do with principles is they walk into the office and they, they dump their problem on you and they walk out. And that's certainly not a way to address something constructively. So everything that we talk about in the book really addresses how to bring people together, how to foster communication, how to encourage dialogue in a productive way so that you engage people in addressing conflict rather than try to battle it single-handedly and fight it off. Right. And I think about that a lot. It's kind of taxing when these situations come up, but the goal always is empower people to solve problems themselves or amongst themselves, you know, right. and instead of, Hey, if you come to me, I'll solve this problem for you because you're right. just building in that, that, well, next time there's a problem, it needs to go to somebody else and they'll solve it for me, which isn't, that's not what we want with students and that's not what we want with staff and parents so how, how about this guys what about if you if you have someone you work with that they're really good at avoiding conflict i mean when there is any possibility of any conflict 100 percent avoidance how would you help them start leaning into and maybe trying to flex those conflict muscles a little bit and get out of their conflict cave. <laughs> I like that phrase. So the uh, first step, and then I'll turn it over to Rob. I'm, I'm stealing this from Rob because it's this is what he usually begins with. So conflict feels bad. I mean, when you're faced with a conflict situation, you start sweating, blotches on your skin, anxiety level rises. So this is pop psychology, maybe. But the first thing to do is to take a breath, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, try to relax, calm yourself, realize that maybe this isn't directed at you. Don't personalize the conflict. There are, and so that's a good, oh, we also have a phrase. I learned it from maybe the school administrator I worked with who I admired most over the years he had a phrase, the issue isn't the issue, meaning the issue that's presented to you isn't necessarily the real issue that the person has. So the first step, I suppose, is to 
calm down and to try to get some perspective. And then I'll turn this to Rob. To follow up with what Seth said, certainly the issue is not always the issue. And I think it's part of, part of in bringing people into the discussion is to kind of understand where they're coming from. We spend a lot of time in the book talking about empathy and developing a sense of empathy, which again, something that we often think about, but we don't necessarily know how to develop, to try to find out what people are thinking, feeling, saying, and doing. So when you have that kind of reluctant partner, it's really important to really take a good look at uh, all the things that he or she presents. Part of sometimes one of the things that we can engage people with is a sense of dissonance. You know, the gap between what they think and what's actually happening, the gap between their beliefs and what's occurring on the ground. And so engaging in a conversation or discussion about whatever that issue is and the gap between what they think they should be and what currently is can be motivating and be be encouraging to, to bring it into dialogue. There's also a, a tendency for us to simplify things all the time. We tend to think, see things in black and white, and, and, and we don't see the shades of color in between. And so perhaps sometimes the first step in working with someone who is taking that kind of very position, I'm not involved in this, I don't want to get involved, I, I'm not interested, is to make things more complex, actually, to show them that there are many things involved in a particular situation, and that their perspective is a valid one. You know, you could say something like, I understand where you're coming from, and it's a valid opinion, although not necessarily one I agree with, inviting them to engage in, in deeper discussion. So we make it more complex. We make it a little bit more complicated than just yes or no. And that often sparks a discussion. You know, it, I, go, ahead, go ahead, Seth. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me that uh, I've been toying with maybe this idea of, you know, let's step back and take a look at how our schools function. And you could try this, Eric, today in your school, and maybe listeners can try it again, because it's it's fascinating to me. So, and I would do this as well. I'm now retired as a school principal, but so you're sitting in a meeting, somebody brings up a controversial issue. It could be anything. How do we teach reading? to do we need to monitor the bathrooms more frequently what have you and then and they propose a solution it's interesting just step back next time you're at a meeting and you find yourself in this situation and listen to how people respond just pretend you're an anthropologist maybe you know looking at a different culture or I used to like the metaphor, pretend you're an extraterrestrial hovering a mile of, of Earth, looking at how these Earthlings behave. And it's so fascinating to me because people would be, I would notice that so somebody puts out an idea. So ask yourself, how do others respond? Like, do they ask questions? You know, the question mark is a lonely punctuation mark mm -hmm. in the English language. People just don't like to use it. So, and in our book, we try to encourage people to, leaders, to get people to respond with genuine probing questions. I say genuine because, yeah, sometimes they, people start questions with, well, what about this? Well, what, that's not really a question. <laughs> you know, that's a judgment disguised as a, as a 
question. So, or they, you know, they start pointing fingers as well. The school leader presents the data that, oh, the fourth grade math results declined this year. And immediately people uh, point fingers. Well, in third grade, they weren't so great either. Or they find some way to absolve themselves or blame other people. It's just fascinating to watch how groups kind of naturally respond. There are psychological reasons to that. So part of our book is trying to figure out how to break these cycles, interrupt the dynamics. A phrase that we use in our book is conflict without divisiveness, that it seems like the way I put it is, Eric, it's not enough for you and I to disagree. If you're going to disagree with me, I also have to put you down. You're a worse person. You're less intelligent than I am, obviously. I'm more handsome than you. The list goes on and on. Of course, it doesn't have to be that way. And we have some suggestions in our book uh, for leaders to kind of establish a new professional norm in the school that we can disagree with each other. But people say, well, disagree uh, respectfully. And of course, that's true. But we have specific strategies that people can use in order to uh, make that come to life. I I Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment. And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com b to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Sorry, Seth, I was going to tell you, I sometimes feel like what you were describing, just observing a conflict in a group, because as a new principal, I kind of feel like like an observer because there's certain dynamics, and I'm thinking especially among the staff, yeah. where you're just watching and observing and noticing body language and tone and who crossed their arms and who's clenching their fist. And so I can relate to that. We're working through, we, we've started a, a, a building leadership team. We call it the guiding coalition. And, and our topic last week, we, we've, we've tried to start with building some trust, just getting to know each other and be comfortable with each other in a small group. But what we started last week was overcoming that fear of conflict. And it was really interesting to hear their, the teacher's perspective on why we avoid conflict and how that has worked in the past and what it's going to take to 
to overcome that because it's hard to change if that's been the culture really yeah. in the school. That's interesting that they were conscious of that, that they could articulate. One of the ironies of, of conflict is that to address it, as you've started to do in your school, Eric, you really need to build relationships. And yet conflict, ironically, tends to separate people. So the, the key part of the key to the solution is developing those relationships, even though there are forces pulling you apart. There's a tendency to overgeneralize about the opposition side and make it a black and white issue. There's emotionality that clouds our judgment. There's a, there's the under, there's a interest in getting your agenda done and rather than listening and, and working with the other side. So the conflict is driving people apart. The job of leadership here is to take a more 30,000 foot view of that and find the factors that can bring folks back together and find the ways to either create better communication, build relationships, and really solve the problems that they're uh, addressing. I do think, as Rob said before, we have this phrase, uh, conflict agility, and I do we do think it's a muscle that can atrophy if it's not used, but also can be toned if it is. And I have this story and I'm putting it out there to show that I, that we can make progress in this area and this group. I mean, you're starting absolutely where you should start, which is trust. It's all the mountain grows from a foundation of trust. But this is again from experience that towards the end of my years as a principal, I was interested in inquiry-based learning. And it's a fundamental shift in the role that teachers would play more as guides on the side, the phrase is, rather than sage on the stage. And we really did something tremendous in a short period of time and kind of transformed the, the way that children end the school year, all 1,200 of them in three grades. And I'm positive that the reason why we were able to accomplish this was, was that we had learned how to deal with conflict. And at one point, conflict would have been an obstacle that we never would have surmounted. But because we had practiced in small parts and kind of built on our conflict agility skills. In the end, we were, you know, we had made great progress in curriculum and instruction because first we had learned to deal with the inevitable conflict that has to be worked through. Yeah. And if you have that foundation, then you can take on anything. There's always going to be another conflict. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Can, can you guys tell me, you mentioned at the start of the, the conversation about the design thinking that came from the engineering field. Can you just tell me some more specifics about that? I, d I don't know much about design thinking and I know nothing about engineering. So I'm just curious <laughs> how that connection. Well, neither did we, so don't feel badly. So. so design thinking did evolve from engineering and it, and it really is designed, it, the purpose of design thinking is to tackle what's called wicked problems. So Wicked problems are the things that defy traditional ways of, of solution. They're, they're not the easy things to do. They're not the mechanical things you can adjust. It's not just tinker here and there. It's these big issues that often wind up becoming very conflicted issues in the school. 
And it's a stru- it's a structured approach to this, which is designed to to involve people's best thinking and develop solutions that are meaningful and practical. There are five steps involved in it, and I'll just briefly go through them. One is, the first step is empathy, and I talked about that before. The reason empathy is so critical is that empathy really helps you understand the full scope of a problem, because we all have tunnel vision. Everyone sees things from their own perspective. It's unavoidable. We all carry biases with us, whether it's uh, looking for facts that confirm what we already know, or the tendency to believe people we already have relationships with. We all have that. So the first step is really gathering the sense of what's out there. What are people thinking, feeling, saying, and doing? Once you have that, because as Seth mentioned before, the presenting issue is not always the issue. And often there's an underlying values issue, a perspective issue, a cultural issue, organizational history issue that's motivating it. So once you have that empathy information, you begin to define the problem more clearly. So that's the second step is define. Once you have the definition, the third step is to what we call ideate. So ideate is a process where you really, we call it thinking, is thinking inside the box. Then people will pose that say you have to think outside the box. We say ideate is thinking without a box at all. It's pure thought. It's really, what are the possibilities here? With every idea accepted and every idea valued for its own sake, before you begin to winnow it down. And that's one of the errors people make in solving these kinds of issues is that they tend to throw out things before they get a chance to fully consider them. So ideate is step three. Step four in the traditional model is called the engineering model. It's called prototype. And prototype is really quick and dirty, quick and fast say, how would we operationalize this? How would we make it come into existence? And thinking about that, sometimes in schools, we do pilots like that. The prototypes are really quick because if you spend a year piloting something, the issue may morph into something else. So then you look at the prototypes and last step is what we call test, which is really saying, okay, we think this is the model that will work. Now we're gonna begin this, and now we'll begin this in earnest and see if it works and gather data about that. And the process can repeat itself. You may find that one of the things engineers do is that they say, if they get the prototype and the prototype doesn't work or work as well as they expected, they go back in the process and they go back to ideate or they go back to the defining the problem. Maybe they missed it. And it has a real history of success. This approach has a tremendous history of success, not only in engineering, but in business and in a field that I find has many parallels to education, which is healthcare. Because in healthcare, too, we're dealing with many people. There are many different professions involved. There are levels of professional expertise. And there's an urgency because you're dealing with human life. So it has a real record of success in those areas. Not so much in education. And part of our work is to help people understand how this process can be adapted for use in schools. The the beauty of the process is that not only does it create lots of possibilities for solutions, But in that process of dialogue and really engaging creatively with others, it brings people together. So we talked about relationships before and the importance of relationships. It builds those relationships. So you don't wind up with a this side and a that side. Mm -hmm. You wind up with a problem solving um, group. Yeah. Instead of having those opposing teams, I'm on this team, you're on that team. Right. Yeah. I, now that you describe that, I wonder if that's where I, I had a superintendent 
years ago use he called it like a 90 day design cycle mm -hmm. you would test for 30 days and then kind mm -hmm. of review initial results mm -hmm. so interesting yeah there yeah, are lots of spin-offs from this very similar yeah. yeah yeah because it's not the way we work in education you know typically what we do i'm sure you've been on these committees out in wyoming as much as we've been then on them in new york you know you form a uh committee it might be a curriculum committee for example, so you all meet and, you know, write, say goodbye to each other. I'll see you next committee <laughs> that forms or, and, and uh, you know, you're done. <laughs> and as if you've reached the all time perfect solution, as opposed to this, I mean, you described it as a 90 day, we're going to go back and reassess and maybe redesign right away. Yeah, I think it's important for us to agree on what success looks like. And then that's really a key piece of, of, of the process is what does it look like when it's done? What does it look like when it's successful? So that we were able to say confidently, we've either done it or let's go back and, and, and try some more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, guys. I wanted to throw out the final question to you today. What can principals do this week to be a more transformative leader like you? That's a very interesting and important question. So thanks, thanks for posing it. I think we've kind of addressed that in some way. There, there are two things, and I think they're, they're both related. One is build trust, because at its bottom, everything we've talked about relies on developing that sense of trust, that sense of, that, that you are what you purport to be, that I can see you being a consistent person, that I can feel that you're honest with me, and that you're approachable. Those things translate for school leaders into many aspects of their work with every stakeholder possible, kids, parents, staff, faculty, you name it. And when you build trust, you build relationships. And one of the authors that I like best is Michael Fullen, who studied school change very deeply. And he always comes down to the same phrase, which is it's about relationships. And good relationships are founded on trust. I'm going to, am I allowed to slightly modify your question? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So I would actually think about this. So there are days that you're sitting behind your desk as a school principal. It's probably, let's say, two o'clock in the afternoon at this point, And you feel like you spent your entire day answering emails. You know, there's a mountain of reports. You've been putting out fires all day. And you really haven't moved the organization forward. So this is my answer to the question, and that is do something every day that really makes a difference in your school. Spend an hour every day. Don't go home or let a day go by unless you've spent an hour on something that is crucial to your school and makes a long-term difference. I love that. I don't always know what that is. But and it's different, of course, in every school for every person. Yeah. I heard a great principal of the year speech at a state conference, and he talked about principals need to mow the lawn more. And his analogy was that feeling when you get done mowing the lawn and it's clean, the stripes are in it, you're sitting down enjoying a cold beverage, and you, you can see that you accomplish something. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because as a principal, you go home 
emotionally, physically exhausted, but you oftentimes leave the building wondering, what did I accomplish today? Yes, <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah. How old are your children? Your children are younger, right? Four and two. Yeah. Like, what do you tell, what does a principal do? Like, they know what a policeman mm. does and they know what a firefighter mm. does. What do you tell them you do? Mm. You know? Well, I, last night I had them at the basketball games in the bleachers and one of my daughters didn't put her shoes back on. And I said, hey, you need to be a good listener. And she said, if I don't, are you going to put me in the principal's office? <laughs> so she knows. <laughs> she, someone has told her. I don't know if that came from her mother or who that was, but yeah. yeah, it speaks to the part of the job that people just don't understand unless they're actually in it. And I, I love the mow the lawn metaphor that it, it's it's a the progress is incremental and constantly building on itself. And it's hard to see sometimes at the end of the school day, how exactly you moved the goalpost. Yeah. It just, it's nice to have that tangible. Um, in Wyoming, where I've been, it's been a wild winter with snow. So there's mm. no, no lawn to mow for months, but I come in early and I plow the snow instead of mow the lawn. And it really does feel good when you get done and you look at sidewalks or a section of a parking lot and you see pavement, you're like, okay, no matter how this day goes, I got that reinforcement of, I accomplished something, which. This is a personal story. I, I don't know whether you want to cut this out in the end, but the, so I mentioned before that I take long bike rides, multi-week bike rides, and I normally mow the lawn, but my wife started mowing the lawn in my absence. And when I came back and asked her how she liked it, she said she loves it, actually. She wants to take over the job. Why? She said, well, I never understood she said, this is exactly what you were saying before. She said, I never understood. I always thought it was weird that after you mowed the lawn, you would like for days, you'd stare at the lawn. <laughs> Same thing. When you shoveled the snow, you know, you'd stare at it for, she catch me at night, like looking out the window at the shoveled walkway. She said, now I get it. You want to see the, the lawn that you just mowed and feel like, wow, I did that. Yeah. Yes. Good advice for a principal. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing some resources and ideas to deal with conflict because it is, it's something we know we're going to deal with and we can always use some of those strategies to really harness the power of the conflict instead of avoiding it or just getting angry about it. So thank you. Well, thank you for having us. And certainly we invite your listeners and uh, those who tune into the podcast to contact us, to reach out to us if they have questions and want to continue the conversation. Yes. And did you, we'll have a link in the show notes, but did you guys want to share um, the best way to contact you for listeners who have questions? They can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at teacheredge.net. Teacher That's Edge, one word. T-H-E-R-E-D-G-E, teacheredge.net. Great. And then we'll have a link in the show notes to both of your email addresses as well. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate Thank you very having much. you on the show. Thank you. Edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B-E 
to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.